Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Jessica Mernan. She's the author of Know Your Endo, and the topic we're talking about is endometriosis. Uh, Jessica has spoken and hosted events at Apple, South by Southwest, Wanderlust, Trust in Wine and Food, and the Emma Bombeck Writers Workshop, among others. Uh, in 2018, she founded Know Your Endo, which is an education platform that raises awareness and provides support for physical and mental impact of endometriosis. So Jessica, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Tell, tell me about your um, your background. What got you into this? Probably, I guess, having it yourself, unfortunately, but what's your background? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because I studied graphic design in college and I really had a big career in marketing and design. And then my whole life changed when I... I was diagnosed with endometriosis. And, you know, it's interesting because I had endometriosis since I was a teenager, but I wasn't diagnosed until my late 20s. And even after a diagnosis, my health just really went downhill from there. And so I finally, when I was on the the verge of getting a hysterectomy, I found some management tools that actually worked for my endometriosis. So I really started doing research and studying and really went deep into plant-based foods and the power of food and movement and stress management. And so I wrote a cookbook and that cookbook was just really the foundation of how I changed my own life with food. And then from that cookbook led to writing a book about endometriosis because the amount of people that came to me and said, oh my gosh, your cookbook helped me get diagnosed or 
just hearing your story was the first time I had ever heard my own story. And, and so I thought, I don't really need to write any more cookbooks. I want to focus more on endometriosis itself. Cause clearly if people are getting diagnosed from a cookbook that is extremely problematic. Yeah, what, so what is endometriosis? What's the clinical definition and yeah. you experience it? What is, what's the experience like? Yeah. So endometriosis is when the type of lining that lines your uterus grows onto the outside of your uterus and that can grow onto organs. I mean, in, in severe cases of endo, it can grow onto people's lungs. People have had lungs collapse because of their endo growing on them. And it really can impact the bowels as as well. A lot of people with endo, 90% of people with endo experience GI issues. So historically, and I think even today in the media, we think of endometriosis as painful periods because, you know, it really impacts a woman's period or a person's period, but that's not the whole story. Endometriosis, because it is growing onto other parts of your body, it can cause significant pain and discomfort throughout the month, not just on your period. And not everyone with endo has painful periods. And so the symptoms include, like I said, GI issues, urinary issues, painful sex, fatigue, painful urination, diarrhea. So there's a lot of symptoms that aren't necessarily connected to periods, which I think is the reason why the average diagnosis time for endo is 10 years and eight doctors. So we have a huge, huge issue happening for people with endo because they're suffering. Not only is their pain not believed, they're not getting a diagnosis to even know why they're in pain. So what, what is endometriosis then? What, what's happening to cause it? How does it start? Well, here's the thing that when, when I agreed to be on your podcast, I was really excited, but you know, I see so many of the people you interview and about cancer and the microbiome and we, there seems to be more evidence and proof of as to, you know, why those things are happening with endometriosis. We don't know why it's happening. And there's definitely theories. There's a very disputed theory of retrograde menstruation. There's theories of genetics. There's theories of immune issues, but we don't know the root cause of it yet. And, you know, the Senate actually just approved doubling the funding into research for 2021, which is extremely exciting because we still don't know the cause of it. And one in 10 women have this condition. So it's not a small and significant number of people that are experiencing this. I'm sure biopsies have been done of the tissue I guess, Correct. You know, outside the uterus. So what does it look like, you know, pathologically or is it pathological the tissue? Like what's been observed? Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, I mean, it's, it's different than normal tissue. We, we still don't know why it responds the way it does or why it's even growing outside of the uterus. And so, you know, and, and unfortunately that is the only way to be diagnosed right now with endometriosis is you have to have a surgery a laparoscopic surgery, and then they biopsy the tissue. So this is another obstacle for people to get diagnosed. And, you know, not everyone has insurance to cover that surgery. Not everyone can take the time off for that surgery. So I'm hoping that with some of this funding, we will be able to 
research it or potentially, hopefully get it diagnosed in an easier way, whether that's through a blood test or something else, because an MRI, a CAT scan, ultrasound, these are not diagnostic tools for endo. They can give you a high suspicion of it, but unfortunately they're not diagnostic tools. But in observing the tissue, is anything seen differently from normal tissue? That is not something that I'm aware of. No. I mean, I think that, again, I think this is why they're getting the funding to to research this is because it is abnormal tissue that is growing outside of the uterus. But, you know, I'm not clear on how that tissue is differing right now. And I think if we had a better idea of how it was different, then we could treat it better. Well, what can people do once they, uh, you know, they're, they're having these symptoms? I mean, you said the diagnosis yeah. takes years and years, but what can they do in the meantime to help themselves? So there's two different types of treatments for endo. And I think it's important to distinguish treatment versus management. So treatment options are a surgery and there's two different types of surgeries. There's ablation surgery, which they essentially burn away that tissue that, that has grown outside of the uterus. And there's also excision surgery where they're actually excising that tissue. With ablation surgery, the big issue with ablation surgery is, is that if that tissue is in places where they're not able to burn, for instance, when I talked about the bowel area, they're leaving that tissue behind, which can create significant issues. It can create more pain if that tissue is left behind. And they're also burning away that tissue, which can create more inflammation. With excision surgery, they're actually able to excise that tissue and they're able to excise it in areas that are quote unquote too dangerous to burn away. The issue is, is that currently in the United States healthcare system, ablation surgery is covered by insurance. Excision surgery is not. So excision surgery can cost up to fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to have that surgery. My last surgery cost that much. I had to borrow money from my family for that. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. There is only really a hand, two, maybe two handfuls of really great endometriosis excision surgeons. So unfortunately, a lot of people that get treatment, they're having five, six ablation surgeries because it's not actually excising the endometriosis. It's burning it away. And we still do not know how to stop endometriosis from coming back. So it's it's very tricky when it comes to treatment. And then on the other side of things, we still have top medical institutions, hospital websites saying that a hysterectomy is a treatment for endo. It is not a treatment for endo. If you remove the uterus and that 
endometriosis has grown outside of the uterus and that endometriosis is not excised, you're still going to experience the same pain. I actually interviewed a woman for my book that was diagnosed with endo after she had a hysterectomy. So just removing the uterus doesn't mean that you're getting out the endometriosis. So that's treatment side of it. Management side, we have seen that a lot of people that are eating lower inflammatory foods, movement, stress management, these are ways that we can calm the body and kind of, I guess, in a way, calm that inflammation down. Again, it is not a cure. I think that there is not one endo diet for everyone. It's going to be a little bit of trial and error to find the tools that are going to work best for you. But for a lot of women, it is a way to help them at least manage it. And when I say manage, that can mean getting out of bed. That can mean going to work. You know, the BBC did a study where they showed that they interviewed 13 and a half thousand people with endo and nearly half of them had had suicidal thoughts or had tried to die by suicide. So this is not just a physical disease. This is something that is impacting mental health, careers, relationships, and it needs to be treated and managed properly. Yeah, I didn't know it was so serious. What's the yeah. um, the progression of it when someone has it? What happens over time? Do they go downhill or it's just a chronic condition that's just very difficult to live with in general? Yeah, and again, ugh, it's like the thing that's so tricky is because we don't have answers yet. You know, I interviewed a woman for my book that was not diagnosed with endometriosis until she was 53 years old. And for 30 years of her life, she had complained of the classic hallmark endometriosis symptoms. And it wasn't until the endometriosis had fused some of her organs together. So her doctor described the endo like gorilla glue. So untreated endo in some people can really impact organs. It can fuse things together. It can, you know, some, some people have had their bowels fused together with other organs. So it's something that if left untreated for some people, it can be very significant while others have endometriosis their whole life, don't have any pain, and they might go through infertility issues. And that is really the extent of the disease in their body. So it really impacts people so differently. And yeah, I wish I had more answers, but we just, we just aren't there yet. So what, um, what did you learn in writing your book? What interesting things did you figure out about it? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. It was a true awakening to understand your own condition for yourself, but not to completely understand it for everyone that is experiencing that. Like when I mentioned that mental health impact, also discovering how it impacts people's careers. It was shown that people with endo lose seven to 10 hours of productivity every week. And people with endo, oftentimes they did a study with women, I think it was in 30 different countries. And it showed that a lot of them have different career paths because of their endo. They take less time off because they want to make sure that they're not seen as weak because of this condition. So I think I was just, I learned so much about how it impacts just all aspects of somebody's life. And I think that that's true with a lot of chronic conditions. I think that we see them, especially, and we call them invisible diseases where the person might look okay, but inside 
they have so much pain and it's really impacting all aspects of their life. Okay. So you mentioned you interviewed one woman that didn't show any symptoms and she got into her fifties. What are some other interesting stories of people you've interviewed? Yeah. And I do want to mention that that woman actually showed symptoms for 20, 30 years of her life. It's just every single time that she went to the doctor, they just put on the chart bad period. So I think that's, you know, a huge issue for people with endo is that again, their pain is not being believed. Like I said, I interviewed someone that wasn't diagnosed with endo until after she was had her hysterectomy. I think, you know, another thing, another, a lot of stories that came up when I interviewed people from the black and queer community of their diagnosis time, sometimes even being extended past. And, you know, one woman I interviewed who identifies as queer, she, you know, didn't shave her legs and dressed like a boy. And her doctors didn't even approach the topic of fertility with her or even explore endometriosis because they said, well, you know, you're probably not going to want to have kids and this isn't important. And all she wants is to have kids. And then I think another thing that I discovered that I think was one of the biggest aha moments for myself is just seeing the power of movement for people with endometriosis, because, you know, you see online all the time when you, I I remember researching painful periods. How can I get rid of these? And this is before I was diagnosed. And you see so much where it's go for a run, exercise, join a gym. But when you're not able to get even out of bed, how are you expected to go for a run? So I think researching and talking to movement experts, people, pelvic floor therapists, people that work with endometriosis patients, the power of movement, but not going for a run, doing a foam roller, being able to do yen yoga, doing simple movements that are not all or nothing. Because with endometriosis, you're so scrunched and hunched and your joints and muscles are oftentimes tight because you're not moving Just to be able to move your body can lengthen those muscles and joints and potentially help with your pain management. So I think it was just, it was an awakening just to be able to see that research and to talk to movement experts, because I think with movement, it's such an all or nothing, you know, crazy hit workout, CrossFit, like all of these intense workouts that that's what you think that movement has to be. When in actuality, it can be gentle to help yourself. So what have you observed that are some of the effective treatments for endo? You said, I guess, maybe low level or low impact exercise consistently that ramps up over time. What what else have you found? Right. So those, so again, so these are going to be management, management practices. I definitely think that we're still, there's only been a couple of studies on the impact of food with on endo they were also done on rats. So really sure how conclusive those are for people with endo, but we have at least seen that a lower inflammatory diet can help inflammatory conditions. There are studies to show this. So with endo being a super high inflammatory condition, I think that from my own experience, the interviews that I've done, things that I've seen, a lower inflammatory diet can help people with endo. Again, this is not going to stop the endo from growing. This is not going to stop cysts from coming back, but we're trying to manage that inflammation. Stress management is huge. You know, the studies that have shown that increased 
pain can come from increased stress. So being able to calm your nervous system can be huge movement, like I mentioned. And then also there's more and more research coming up about how chemicals and toxins and menstrual products can potentially impact a woman's hormones and how we feel, especially with endometriosis. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, and I think that some of your podcast guests would probably agree, you know, the, if the FDA is saying that a lot of these chemicals are just fine to be in your makeup, they're fine to be in your home products, your cleaning supplies, your tampons and pads, or we're having other side of the research showing that actually maybe these could be potential cancer causing, maybe these could cause hormonal imbalances. So I'm in the camp of if it could, I'm not using them anymore. So there's definitely in the book, we talk about kind of living a little bit of a lower toxin lifestyle. We can't get rid of all the chemicals and toxins in our life, but we can at least try to eliminate the ones that we know that could potentially be cancer causing. Well, have you done that? And what have you observed or have you helped other people to do that? What do they observe? Yeah. I mean, I've done that in my own life and I'd have to say it's hard sometimes to know what is making the greatest impact for my endo. I definitely think food and movement makes a great one, but I have completely changed my entire life from down to, like I said, the tampons and pads that I use to the cleaning supplies, to the movement, to the food. So I truly could not get out of bed in the morning 10 years ago. And I quite frankly, didn't want to be alive most days. And And now being able to function on my period, to function throughout the month because of all of these changes, I mean, I will never go back. And and, and this is why it's so important to me to raise awareness for these tools and to raise awareness for the types of treatments, because there's just so much misinformation out there that, that we're getting even from, you know, like I said, some of the top hospital websites and we're just not given this information right now. Well, we are, we're just not seeing it in bigger ways, I think yet. So again, what are some of the the other things that you point out in your book that would help women that are suffering? Yeah. So, so I think movement, stress management, you know, in the book, we, we definitely talk about, you know, finding tools that work for you. Like it doesn't have to be meditating twice a day. Just doing a jigsaw puzzle can actually calm your body when you're focused on one task in front of you. Mindful walking. There's actually interesting, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Stanley, who wrote the book, Widen the Window. When I interviewed her, she talks about that for a lot of people that have been through prolonged stress and trauma, especially medical trauma, a lot of time breath-based meditation can actually activate that anxiety again. So finding other tools like mindful walking, which is simply walking outside without a podcast or music or talking to a friend, just really focused on the movement of your hands, the flowers. And I know this sounds a little bit, you know, woo-woo yoga, but we need these things to calm our minds and bodies down. So The stress management chapter, I think is huge. Like I mentioned, food, lower inflammatory foods, lower impact movement. Now that's also not to say that, you know, my sister has endo and she runs marathons. So really it's so much about finding the practices that work best for your body. So I'm sure you looked into the research surrounding it. Is the research even 
admitting that there's a problem? Like how early stage is it? Or are there any, I don't know, potential insights that are coming from the research that you see? Endometriosis itself? Yeah, how to treat it, how to understand it. Yeah, I mean, the the sad thing is, is, or the good and sad thing is that there is a lot more research. Like I mentioned, the Senate approved doubling the funding for endo research. Like this is a significant issue. I think that a lot of times with women's health issues, they're secondary to be researched over men's issues at times. And so there is research happening, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where it almost sounds fake that we don't understand it yet, but we don't understand it yet. And I think, you know, a lot of, there are people out there, more functional medicine doctors that are treating endo more as an autoimmune condition. You'll see that a lot. Some people are claiming it's an autoimmune condition. We don't know that yet. So it's hard to give concrete answers for some of these things because we just don't fully understand why endometriosis happens. You know, just last week, Spain, this is just unreal. Spain has now made it so women with endometriosis cannot join the police force in Spain. So it's, it's baffling to me that it's clearly then a significant condition if they're not allowing people with endo to join the police force because they see it as a disability, yet we don't still understand why it happens. So it's very conflicting and confusing and quite frankly, kind of angry. It makes me kind of angry to think about that. What do you think is, uh, I don't know, in the next year or so, you know, is there any research you're following that appears to be on the trail of what's going on? Or is it, yeah, is it going to I be mean, years and years, you think, before a breakthrough? I think it's going to be years and years, but it's happening. And I think that gives so much of us with endo hope. I mean, here's the thing. Most people that have endometriosis, at least the people that are my age, I'm in my 40s, they had never even heard the word endometriosis until they were diagnosed. I didn't, I had never heard the word before I was, I woke up from surgery and they said that I had endometriosis. So for me, step one is for people to just know the word. I actually go to high schools pre COVID, but I'm going to be going back there again just to teach young, girls, the word endometriosis, to know the symptoms, to have symptom awareness. I think that this is step one and that's what we can do. And then we also have researchers that, you know, I just blanked on her name, but there's actually a researcher at MIT right now. There's just a huge article on her in the New York times. And she has has endometriosis and she also had cancer. And she said, endometriosis was harder than my cancer. And so she is really dedicating her career and her research to figuring out why endometriosis happens and how we can treat it better because it's not sustainable to have a 15 to $20,000 surgery as a treatment. That's not sustainable for most people. So to recap, what are the what are the symptoms of endometriosis in the beginning, the middle, maybe in the end, or if you've had it short term or long term? Well, I mean, when you have it, you have it until you go into menopause. And then obviously, because you're in menopause, you're not having periods anymore, and you're going to be in better shape in terms of the endo not growing. But when you have it, I mean, a lot of people experience symptoms from their very first period. So 
as I mentioned, painful periods, painful sex, fatigue, GI issues, uh, urinary retention, urgency, frequency, painful diarrhea, infertility. Uh, the, the rate right now is 50% of unexplained infertility is because of endometriosis. So there's a lot of people that are not diagnosed with endo until they are going through fertility issues. So like, like I said, you know, a lot of these symptoms, if you're having excruciating GI symptoms, painful diarrhea or urinary issues, you're not going to your gynecologist and complaining of those. You're going to a GI specialist. So I think symptom awareness is so key because if we see, oh my gosh, GI issues and I have a painful period and I have fatigue, then you'll be able to go to your gynecologist and present all of these symptoms to, to that person, if that makes sense. So what tends to stop the symptoms? Do, do people even make it to menopause with their uterus or is it usually gone from hysterectomy? No, I mean, so, do they, do they okay? Are they okay after that? Yeah. I mean, I ended up not getting a hysterectomy because I'm at the point where I'm able to manage my endo there's a lot of people that do get hysterectomies, but again, if that endometriosis is not excised with the hysterectomy, they're still going to be in pain. So a lot of people, yeah, they make it to menopause. They might've had an amazing surgery. There's also people that have endometriosis that have very little pain. Like I said, maybe infertility is the only symptom that has really come up for them. So it's such a wide range of how it impacts people. And, you know, we're still trying to figure out why, and, you know, the stages of endo right now, the stages are one through four, but even those aren't really accurately representing endometriosis and how it impacts. Like if you have stage one endo and you have lesions on very you know, painful parts of your body, you could be in more pain than someone has that has stage four. So we are still really trying to get to a better place in terms of, you know, I guess, ranking the endometriosis in the body, the stages, the treatment, the management, we're still really working hard to, to figure this out. Have you spoken to women that have had, you know, the ablation or the excision or a hysterectomy, and again, has that stopped their symptoms? Like, even though it's not a nice thing, even though it may be a very invasive yeah. thing, are there yeah. treatments that can stop it? Well, not stop it, but when you excise it, for instance, you're excising the endo, that doesn't necessarily stop it from growing back. So it's it's so sad in a way, right? That we kind of cross our fingers and hope that it doesn't come back. I mean, I've had I've had multiple surgeries for cysts, ovarian cysts that have grown because of my endo. So we are not able to stop it quite yet. But what we hope is, is that with excision surgery, it does buy you a lot more time than an ablation surgery. So with a great excision surgery, you might be able, like I had my last excision surgery three years ago. I'm hoping that takes me to menopause and that I won't have to have another surgery. So I'm managing it. And I think that that's so key is that I think right now where we are with the treatment and management of endo is that we can't look at it as like, I'm going to cure this. I'm going to make sure that this doesn't grow back because we can't stop that right now. All we can do is manage it to the point where 
We can go to work. We can get out of bed and we can live a life with endo. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out uh, how to get your book and to learn more from you? Where can they go? You can go to knowyourendo.com slash book. You can find my book there. The Endometriosis Foundation of America and the Center of Endometriosis are also great resources. They do a lot of research into endometriosis. And yeah, it's it's one of those things that I really always like to kind of wrap it up with a happy bow and say, this is the treatment, but I just hope, I just want to give people hope that you can live a life with endometriosis, that you can be happy and that you can want to be alive because for a lot of people, that's not always the case. Yeah, that's terrible. Well, very good. Jessica, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, I appreciate you talking about this. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.